the future of affordable housing according to our crystal ball. This week, we'll be talking with Giri Puligandla of the Canadian Mental Health Association and Crystal Kajenner, the Director of Affordable Housing at the City of Edmonton, about affordable housing. Plus, stick around until the end to be introduced to new and former councillor Aaron Paquette. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm also Troy. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 154, where... I promise Mac will show up in this episode. We recorded the bulk of this episode in a previous week as Mac is off gallivanting on vacation wherever he is. He, like former counselor Michael Walters, does not tell me details about his personal life. So no knowledge of where Mac is this week, but you get to enjoy me for the opening segment. And what's everyone's favorite opening segment? Well, it's the rapid fire. Edmonton's Integrity Commissioner has been appointed to conduct a review of HR policies for legislature staff after a lawsuit was filed by a former Kenny government chief of staff alleging sexual harassment and excessive drinking. This is good news, at least according to former Solicitor General Jonathan Dennis. The alleged lawyer, who represented Mike Nickel in his code of conduct hearings, hearings that he characterized as witch hunts organized by Jamie Pytel, looks forward to learning about Pytel's findings and then dismissing them out of hand due to bias. Edmonton bus service will be reduced by 3% because of unvaccinated drivers being put on unpaid leave, the city has said this week. The reduction should be temporary as new staff has been hired to replace the 15 drivers who have been placed on leave. Said the branch manager of ETS, quote, don't let the U of A escalator break on you on your way out. A 1922 Edmonton Bulletin article appears to be the first published usage of trick or treat, according to Barry Popick, a New York etymologist. The threatening ultimatum can now be classified as a uniquely Edmontonian phrase, along with other common Edmonton threats like, you wanna go, bud? And let's order food from Ho-Ho's in Hub Mall. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported, and Mac's not here this week, so I get to read whatever copy I want for these ads. It was a dark and stormy winter's eve as Michael glanced through the frosted glass out at the desolate, snow-swept landscape. As the sharp, grasping fingers of cold slipped in through every nook and gap in his insulation, his body convulsed in shivers. But the tremors were nothing compared to the quakes he would feel when he received his next natural gas bill. A bill for which he did not choose Park Power, his friendly local utilities provider with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. As he placed his last log onto the hearth, he was overcome with a sadness, much like the cold, that he knew would overcome him soon. If only he had known. If only he had learned more at parkpower.ca. But Michael was a fool. A cold, cold, lonely fool. Today on the podcast, we have two guests joining us. Uh, Giri Puligandla, the executive director of the Canadian Mental Health Association, Edmonton Region, and Crystal Kajenner, the director of affordable housing and homelessness at the city of Edmonton. We want to have these two guests on because we've talked housing and homelessness a lot in the past few episodes of the podcast. We've discussed how wraparound supports, and indeed we have a new council who many members have been talking about how we need to solve housing and homelessness and we need wraparound supports. So we want to get into exactly where we are, where we're going, and what all of that means. So we figured Gary and Crystal were great guests to have. Welcome to podcast. Thanks for having us on. Yeah. It is uh, November, which is Edmonton Housing Month. And so that's a good excuse to bring this topic up again and delve into a little bit more. We're also still 
you know, fresh off the municipal election. Uh, we had a whole section in our Taproot survey about housing, about affordable housing, provisioning housing first, um, how to address encampments. So we've heard, as Troy said, lots about that. Uh, but maybe we could start with just, you know, it's it's Edmonton Housing Month. There's a whole month dedicated to this important part of, uh, of our city. So, uh, Geary, maybe you can start and tell us a little bit about Edmonton Housing Month is about raising awareness of the importance of housing for pretty much everyone in the community, certainly for for people who are who are struggling or who are marginalized. I mean, housing plays a very critical role as a foundation, so to speak, for pretty much everything else in their lives. So uh, I think many of us have the, the privilege of taking housing for granted, and we just have to recognize that there are a lot of people for whom housing is uh, a need, uh, a need that we all as a community have to work together to fulfill. And your organization is one of the organizers, right? Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, CMHA's role in housing and uh, and in Housing Month? Sure. Um, so, I mean, more broadly, I mean, Canadian Mental Health Association, obviously mental health, That's uh, it's in our name. It's the primary focus of our mandate and um, we're part of a national movement um, you know with CMHs across the country serving 330 communities uh, really focused on um, promoting the mental health of all Canadians and and supporting resilience and recovery of people experiencing mental illness and their families in terms of housing we're a pretty small player uh, we have about you know just under 150 units in in seven buildings and but uh, beyond that, uh, we, we play a, a role in, in uh, supporting access to housing. Uh, we operate the 211 uh, helpline uh, here in Edmonton, actually for the northern half of the province and North, Northwest Territories and Nunavut. So for a lot of people, I mean, housing is probably, uh, is always in the top three of, uh, you know, when, when people call 211 looking for community resources, it's always in the top three of uh, requests. Um, you know, and then, of course, you know, those things related to housing, like income and um, and so forth. So I just want to follow up quickly there. The CMHA itself operates those units of housing. There's some units of housing that are owned and operated by the Mental Health Association. Yeah, yeah. So over the years, CMHA has uh, added to our housing portfolio. So um, like I was saying, I, we have just under 150 units. Uh, so in seven buildings, and so yeah, we we own uh, a portion of those, and then we operate some of them on behalf of the the province. Most of our work is is in operating uh, helplines like right. Edmonton Distress Line two on one. So housing is a pretty small uh, portion of our our uh, activities that are directly related to providing housing. But uh, like I was saying, I mean, with with mental health being you know kind of a critical component around uh, housing and homelessness issues, uh, we are um, quite involved in the broader kind of community efforts related to housing. Yeah. I promise we'll get to the city and Crystal, but I want to follow up on that. So the CMHA, you guys operate 211 uh, directly. Uh, is that a joint yep. operation or is it just entirely in your wheelhouse? So 211, I, I like to frame it almost like a, it's like the electricity grid 
for the community sector, for all those nonprofits, all those all those community organizations and groups that are providing programs and services and also government services. It's the directory, but on, on, on one hand, it's the database, right? It's the directory of all those services. But then as a service, it's actually being able to call a number and have somebody work with you to figure out, you know, you, you may have some vague issues in your head and then actually translating those into needs and then connecting those needs to what's out there in terms of programs and services and then getting a little bit of help in, in connecting with those with those services. I mean that's that's what two on one does. And so we we do partner with uh, United Way of the Alberta Capital Region as well as uh, Distress Center Calgary uh, to deliver two on one across the province. We are um, the operators for for Edmonton and then for, for uh, like I said, the northern half of pro- the province and actually Northwest Territories in Nunavut. Okay, well, this is probably a good point to bring you in, Crystal. One of the the things that uh, Gary mentioned is often uh, a request or a need when people are calling two one one is housing. So you work at the city; you've got a broader view, I guess, on the state of housing in in Edmonton. Can you bring us up to speed now in November twenty twenty one? What is the state of housing in Edmonton? What is the need? What are the gaps? That kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I think that's a really good question because I think sometimes when we talk about housing or we talk about, you know, a need around housing, there's sometimes uh, people hear mixed messages or it's not always clearly explained exactly what we're talking about. So as you, you know, you may know, Edmonton is still one of the more affordable urban housing markets in Canada and especially compared to larger cities. So you'll see headlines that say, you know, Edmonton, affordable place to live and that sort of thing. But what that's ultimately referring to is the cost of home ownership, uh, which is a irrelevant to sort of the tens of thousands of Edmonton households that are struggling to simply be able to afford paying their rent, um, much less being able to buy a home. That includes, you know, obviously low-income families and also the more than 8,000 people who are currently on wait lists for affordable housing in our city. Uh, The Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation is the one that we look to for definitions and numbers around core housing needs. And so what core housing need means is, is when someone is living in housing that falls below the standards of adequacy uh, because it's in need of major repairs, affordability, which means that their shelter costs cost more than 30% of their below tax household income, and also uh, suitability. So suitability is when people are living in overcrowded situations or there's not enough bedrooms for the composition of the household. So when someone is living in housing that falls below one of those three standards, we consider them to be in core housing need. And then there's also um, other terms of use around severe housing need, which is when shelter costs are greater than 50% of a household's before-tax income. Currently in Edmonton, there's about 56,000 households that are considered to be in core housing need. And according to the 2016 census, almost half of those households were also in extreme um, housing need. So we know that the gap for affordable housing in our city amongst low-income renters is very significant uh, and and over time we've seen that that trend has been increasing slowly although we um, you know it's reasonable to expect that the pandemic will have had a more uh, you know had a further added further pressure and created more affordability gaps as well so we're waiting for new census numbers which will be released next year and see what he does annual surveys, which will also inform our information on the need. And actually, I'd just like to add to, in light of the, the data that's coming out, um, our team at the city is putting together a new housing needs assessment for the city of Edmonton that will 
elaborate not only on the overall number of households in core housing need and explain, but also who's more likely to be overrepresented um, amongst those households in core housing needs. For example, we know Indigenous people are uh, significantly overrepresented amongst both those experiencing housing need and homelessness. Um, about 20% of Indigenous households in Edmonton are in core housing need, which compares to about 12% of non-Indigenous households, for example. So we will have a report forthcoming next year that really, really articulates this in fine detail um, and can be a resource for everyone in the community for planning around affordable housing. So take us through a little bit where we're at. I know that uh, we have an affordable housing investment plan target, and I believe it's 2,500 units of affordable housing and 600 units of affordable housing by 2022. That's um, coming up pretty quick. Do you know where we're at on the continuum to achieving that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think just to give you sort of the lay of the land, if it's okay with you, I'll just talk a little bit about where we've been over the last sort of four years and where we're going. And I can definitely touch on those specific goals. The city of Edmonton has been involved in affordable housing for a long time. Um, our involvement really started in the 1950s. Um, but over the decades, our role has evolved and changed um, with different political direction and different, you know, directions set by other orders of government. And so at times we've been sort of a convener helping to plan for affordable housing. We've been a developer ourselves directly developing social housing um, in the 60s and the 70s. We've also been a funder um, providing grant funding and providing land. Really the city of Edmonton's involvement since about 2010, 2012, it had sort of changed. If you remember in like 2005, we had the big boom, um, Alberta was booming. We had, you know, extremely low vacancy rates, huge pressure on affordable housing. Um, and so the city at that time had received a whole bunch of block funding from the province and we had created a program to um, create affordable housing grants. Um, so once all that block funding from the province was spent, the city provided some annual grants, about $6 million a year, but it, we weren't really funding housing in a large, consistent way um, to the same extent that we are today. So what happened four years ago is, you know, on account of leadership by council, who really said, you know, we want to evolve the city's role in affordable housing. We really want the city to play a larger role. We put in place a number of policies and programs that would basically establish the city of Edmonton as a significant and regular funder of affordable housing and also making land available as part of that too. So the first piece was we passed a new policy called our affordable housing investment guidelines, which really set the expectation that affordable housing is a core part of public infrastructure and it belongs in all parts of the city. And to facilitate that achievement of that vision, we are going to make land and grants available through something called the affordable housing investment program, which every year will intake um, applications from third-party developers, uh, both nonprofit and private, to build affordable housing that can serve meet the needs of Edmontonians. The goal for the first four years of the Affordable Housing Investment Program was to support 2,500 units of overall affordable housing, and included amongst that was 600 units of supportive housing. And in terms of progress, um, we are well on our way. Um, the pandemic provided a little bit of a delay for us just because we were um, we were delayed in launching the program due to just council not meeting for several months and that sort of thing. But where we're at right now is we are close to, last time I checked, we were close to 1,600 total units. And we had just completed um, a third intake for that program, which has a lot of really strong applications. So we'll be approving another significant chunk of units for that third intake very shortly. And then on the supportive housing file, we are... Um, closing in on 400 units. So we have 
already confirmed support for 400 units, and we have another 200 that are sort of that are in the pipeline in terms of sites that we're making available and funding that we're hoping will be approved. So we are well on our way to achieving both of those targets by the deadline. And so the deadline, when we say 2022, we really mean probably the end of 2022, because we're not going to get another thousand units in the next two or three months or whatever, right? That's right. The end of 2022. Yeah, we think in sort of our four-year budget cycles, uh, which includes 2022. And as you say, the need is much, much bigger, right? So Mm -hmm. 2,500 units of affordable housing. What is the gap? What do we actually need right now? Yeah. So uh, Savita has uh, close to 8,000 people on their wait list for deep subsidy housing. And as I mentioned previously, we have about 55,000 households in core housing need. Um, so yeah. the gap is is significant. There are obviously different strategies for meeting that need, including not just new units of affordable housing, but also uh, rent subsidies and income supplements um, that are offered by other orders of government as well. But there's no doubt that we have a shortage of affordable housing uh, in the city. And there's more that we need to do. Now, maybe this is naive, but I I have to ask the question of if we have identified such a big gap and we know that we save money by diverting people from the justice system, by diverting people from our hospital system, why don't we just spend a couple hundred million dollars and fix it tomorrow? What What am I missing? What is so difficult about this problem that over the past 15 years, we haven't just sat down and funded it? Yeah, that's a great question, Troy. That's a really good question. So um, I think there's a few uh, points that I would make around that. So the first is that um, I wish that the problem could be solved with a couple um, hundred million dollars. But unfortunately, the reality is that um, building affordable housing is expensive, you know, building any housing is expensive in this country. And actually, the city through the affordable housing investment plan that was approved in 2018, in which I just described the unit progress on that entire plan is actually uh, was $132 million when we approved it. But with the inclusion of additional funding for supportive housing through the, uh, in conjunction with the rapid housing program, which I can talk a bit more about later, uh, we are actually closing in. It's much the investment overall is closer to $200 million just remember this four-year cycle. And so what we know is that solving this problem and solving this problem sustainably requires investment from all three orders of government. And it also requires time. And so the federal government really stopped funding affordable housing in a consistent big way in the 90s and didn't really come back to the table as a significant sort of leading funder with a national housing strategy until 2016. And so the vacuum that was created by the lack of federal leadership over that period was, you know, contributes to these trickle-down effects, which means that it's harder for other orders of government, like provinces and municipalities, to really fully leverage the smaller resource bases that they have to apply to the problem. And so when we were putting together the Affordable Housing Investment Plan in 2018, what we really wanted to do was put in place a strategy where the city putting in funding, the funding that it can afford with its, you know, relatively smaller um, revenue base, would we could really use that funding to make sure that we attract funding from both the province and the federal government. So we, we said we want to be, we'd be open to being the first in on projects. We'd be open to giving land away for free. We'd be open to supporting um, providers through the zoning processes and engagement processes associated with affordable housing. And in doing all of that, the hope was that we would create a whole bunch of shovel-ready projects that basically were ready and waiting to easily be funded by other orders of government with deeper pockets. And so what we're seeing now is that strategy is starting to pay off. But unfortunately, most housing, not all housing, but most housing, isn't 
it takes several years to develop and build. And it also takes time for the nonprofit sector that we're working with to sort of ramp up and expect to be able to access funds on a regular and consistent basis, which is something that hadn't existed for, you know, many years prior to the launch of the new affordable housing strategy. So, so we are, you know, we're optimistic that the momentum is heading in the right direction and that we can continue to achieve more aggressive and ambitious goals as we continue down this path. But ultimately, solving the problem requires all three orders of government to be on the same page. And that's what will make the most impact. Speaking of the nonprofit partners, uh, we've got one of those on the call right now. Um, Giri, you had mentioned in our conversation before the call that, you know, there are things that the CMHA is doing, but there are also things that aspirationally you want to be doing, but you know, for a variety of reasons, can't or aren't doing right now. What are some of the things that you hope the CMHA might be able to achieve in the future? And what what will it take to get us there? When we talk about housing and we talk about housing need, the, the supply question is really important. And we do have to, you know, address the, the fairly simple math of you've got X people who need affordable housing and you only have so much uh, available and so how do you how do you fill that gap but i mean from our perspective people living with mental health challenges and related issues like addiction and trauma and you know um you know experiencing violence and you know and things like that it's more than just a place to live you need supports and then also there's the matter of um, functioning so it's one thing to have a place to live that's affordable. It's another thing to be able to maintain that place yourself or to have the supports so that you can continue to live there. Um, again, like some things that we take for granted, like, you know, being able to clean it. Uh, I, th- I think when we when we look at the, the continuum or the, the spectrum, the housing spectrum, We've got, you know, you got your private sort of, you know, home ownership and, you know, private rentals. And then you've got this sort of public social space um, that, you know, the city and various nonprofits uh, like us uh, fill with, you know, affordable housing. And then you've got a bit of a gap, right? And once we enter into the kind of support needs uh, area, we've got a bit of a gap, actually a huge gap, I'll say. Uh, And then we hit sort of the supportive housing, uh, uh, you know, part of the spectrum where you've got, you know, on-site supports or even like programs like Housing First, you've got fairly intensive case management associated with with your, uh, or, or supporting you to live. But there's this gap in the middle for people who just need somebody who's going to maybe check in on them on a regular basis, someone that you can talk to uh, if, you're, if you're in distress or you're struggling, somebody who can help you build the skills you need to live independently. You know, I, and I, I think we may not have all the information we need to be able to solve this problem effectively if we're not thinking about these kind of lighter touch uh, options uh, or, you know, uh, or ways that we, we might be able to support people in in keeping their housing. So one of the things that we've been really, well, that I've been really focused on since I started here less than 10 months ago, but certainly this has been building in my head um, and, and others as well for over 15 years, is what would it look like to actually engage people with lived experience of mental illness, of addiction, of homelessness, uh, but then also of recovery and, you know, getting, you know, getting their, their lives and their identities back. What would, it, what would it be like to actually engage and, and hire people with lived experience to provide 
uh, support to be able to, you know, go and, you know, at, at the very least check in on people, uh, provide some skill development, and then kind of create a, a sense of community and, and relieve people of uh, that isolation that sometimes uh, kind of gets in the way of their their success. So like, this is something I've been talking about with other agencies, certainly CMHAs across the country are, are big proponents and providers of peer support. So how do we connect the dots between peer support and housing support to fill that pretty big gap in the middle? And just a quick follow up on that is the is the challenge about funding? To, to make what you're talking about happen and make it a reality? Uh, you certainly, funding is is an important question, especially when we think about, you know, the responsibilities of health and social systems to ensure the well-being of, of Albertans. But I, I think this is also about how we, trying to think of the right word here, deinstitutionalize, de declinic. <laughs> I don't know what the word is, but yeah. we, we often we often sort of default to these like really intensive, clinically oriented models when there's probably something much more natural, like having somebody who shares a similar lived experience connect with you and, right. you know, kind of show you show you the way. I mean, that that is that's normal human relation, that's normal human support. So, you know, we just have to kind of, like I said, um, what I, like what I said really badly, <laughs> kind of uh, shift away from these, these uh, you know, this, this tendency to, to default to clinical models and, and look at, you know, much more kind of community-based, community-oriented, community-led uh, approaches to providing supports. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good reminder that, you know, there, this is a, a big problem. We need different orders of government and programs and all the things that go along with that. But at the end of the day, we're trying to help people. Uh, and that, that's a really good reminder. I want to ask you both, uh, because we are just in November, new city council, uh, your thoughts on the new council. But maybe we can start, uh, Crystal, with you. You mentioned earlier the Rapid Housing Initiative. And this is one of the first orders of business, I believe, that is going to the new council. So executive committees looking at funding agreements for these hotel conversions that we talked about on the show previously that were approved in uh, in August. Maybe you can just bring us up to speed on, on where we're at with rapid housing and then and talk a little bit about, if, if you can, I know you work for administration, any any thoughts you have on our new council? Uh, sure. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to talk about those things. Um, so the first, yeah, so to your first point around uh, the rapid housing initiative, I'll just explain a little bit what that is. So a few years ago at City Council, after Homer Trust had completed its updated plan to end homelessness in 2017, City Council had endorsed that plan, and they were really, really interested in how the city could be more involved and engaged in supporting the community's efforts to end homelessness. And so one of the areas we thought that we could um, really contribute to was around supportive housing. So this was identified in the plan as one of the biggest gaps in Edmonton when it came to um, infrastructure necessary for ending homelessness. And at the time, it was estimated that uh, we were short 900 units of supportive housing um, that was really critically needed. And so what supportive housing is, is really a lot of what Gary was just talking about. Um, it's affordable housing combined with on-site health and social supports um, to help people maintain their housing independently and to support them um, with, you know, bettering their lives and staying housed. And so when we kind of looked around and said, like, well, why aren't we getting affordable housing or why isn't supportive housing being built in the volumes that's needed? We saw that there were a number of barriers. To it, and one of uh, those barriers was that you really required nonprofit organizations to try and stitch together funding from like 
five different sources of government funding, you know, across all three levels. And another barrier was also that finding land that could be used for supportive housing and also that had, you know, community acceptability or buy-in from the neighbors for supportive housing was also a challenge. So the city uh, stepped up to help the nonprofit sector overcome those barriers by basically um, agreeing to provide land for supportive housing and then also to um, support our nonprofit partners to the engagement processes required for uh, redevelopment. And so we started with with five city-owned sites that we identified from our surplus inventory and one that four that we identified from our surplus inventory and one that we acquired in the, off the private market. And we um, put together a package working with Homeward Trust to develop all five sites for supportive housing and approach the other orders of government for uh, capital funding. And so what we found when we went to the other orders of government, although that there was interest in supporting non-market housing or affordable housing, there wasn't any specific programs for supportive housing. And that was a really significant gap um, in that the programs that were available didn't um, anticipate, you know, very low income housing combined with this additional operating costs associated with the supports on site. So uh, ultimately, actually, in June 2020, the city council even had approved at one point us proceeding with the construction of these five sites on our own, with our own city funding completely. But thankfully, we that wasn't required because um, in a few months after that, the federal government announced a new rapid housing initiative, which would pay for up to 100% of the cost of capital construction for supportive housing and housing for people experiencing homelessness and other um, marginalized communities. So the city so far has been successful in achieving funding through that program. So in the first round, CMHC provided us with $35 million to support the construction of the first five sites. And then we also were notified that the city would be receiving additional funding through that program, um, which we'll be using to support the acquisition and renovation of two hotels into um, permanent housing for people. And so that through that second round, we received $14.9 million. So, so far, we are we have received just about $50 million from the federal government to support our supportive housing goals. And the funding agreement and the details on the second round is uh, forthcoming. That'll be going to council in the middle of November. But what if everything goes as planned, we will have support for building close to 350 units total through the QR chart program. So it's really exciting. It's like sort of a once in a lifetime opportunity. It's very rare for governments to provide 100% of funding or significant, um, Mm -hmm. you know, funding for all of it. And so we're really excited that we were in a position that we were ready to activate that funding. Oh, because I guess I forgot the major catch, which is that all of this housing needs to be constructed in a year, (laughs) which is why it's called the rapid housing program. So uh, that. Yeah, so that has really, you know, tested the strength of our uh, organization and our partners to really mobilize. But for sure, there's an agreement that this goal is so important. We need to pull out all the stops. So do you anticipate that our new council who, you know, you've probably had a chance to uh, maybe talk to a couple of the new councillors, I assume. Are you optimistic about this new council actually getting it done and doing the needful on these upcoming initiatives? Or um, is there a bit of reticence? Um, so uh, yeah, I, that obviously you know I work for administration, and I will say uh, <laughs> as a member, our best. Yeah, as a member of administration. But I will, you know, I want to like I'll be honest with you. I, you know, I think we in we are privileged to work in a in a city where Edmontonians really prioritize um, the needs of our of people who are marginalized, and we see Edmontonians prioritizing affordability issues and homelessness issues uh, consistently, right? And so I think 
as a result of the concern that is expressed by the citizens of Edmonton. Uh, we've been fortunate in Edmonton that we often have, you know, elected leaders that reflect that mandate and give us marching orders that are consistent with that. And so I think we had great leadership on affordable housing on the previous council. And, you know, I, I have no reason to expect that that will change with the new council. Um, but obviously we're here to serve at their pleasure. I think there's one important final question that we have to ask both of you. Uh, our listeners expect journalistic prowess from us, and we have to deliver on this front. So we have to ask the question to both of you. What are your thoughts on the Talus Dome? Uh, the big silver balls by the white mud. Perfect piece of art. You love it. You hate it. What are your thoughts on that? That's so funny. Someone <laughs> told me that I needed to be prepared for this. <laughs> That's funny. I, you know, I personally, I love the Talos Dome. I think it's a great piece of public art. I like the location. I often, um, you know, go for runs and walks in that area. And uh, it delights me every time I encounter it. So I'm a pro, I'm pro Talos Dome. In pure principle, right? Like we have to support art. We have to support art and community you know, and like across the city. So just based on principle, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely supportive. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> when I first saw it, I'm like, why, why <laughs> there? Right. Cause, uh, but you know, I, I'm, uh, I would miss it now if it wasn't there. And I, frankly, I want to see more interesting thought provoking and, you know, arguably controversial art in other weird places. Because, like, that's just, I, I, I want that to be Edmonton. I want that to be sort of like a, how we do things here. We're going to have to do a tally, Troy, at some point about all the in favor or against the Talus Dome. But uh, glad to hear both of you are in favor. This is the the point of the show where we give you an opportunity to plug anything, calls to action, what, you know, where should listeners go? Uh, I will say Edmonton Housing Month. You can find events and things at housingmonth.ca. Uh, what else should listeners know? Uh, well, from my from my point of view, a lot of times um, people ask me how they can get involved or how they can get engaged and what what sort of the average Edmontonian can do to support our goals around affordable housing and ending homelessness. And I think one of the most important things that Edmontonians um, who care about these issues can do is, you know, us, the city, and our nonprofit partners are, are out there in the community trying to build affordable housing and do community engagement. And sometimes we, you know, encounter fear or opposition from a small group of people that are not supportive or don't or struggle to um, understand the goals around this. And so I think the most important thing that Edmontonians can do is if you care about, you know, reconciliation, you care about structural inequality, um, supporting affordable housing initiatives, you know, showing up and engaging, speaking your mind. I think hearing from the, we know Edmontonians on a broad basis, sort of a large majority are supportive of these issues and just making sure that, that your voices are heard on them will go a long way to encouraging our partners to keep doing the great work that they're doing. So that would be my plug. Great. And Gary? We've been talking about how important housing is for people. Um, and certainly it's housing is critical for people to uh, be able to have good mental health and to live, you know, good lives. But mental health is also critical for people to be able to maintain their housing. And, you know, this pandemic has just done a number on everybody. And I, I think like we, we can't rely on formal systems to solve our problems. Like really it is about community. It's about us as citizens, as neighbors, as friends, as relatives to, to step up and be able to recognize when the people around us are struggling um, with, with their mental health. And so people often say, oh, I don't know where to turn for help. 
So I'll give you two things, two options. One is 211. It's three numbers, 211. The folks on the other end of the phone, by the way, you can call, text, chat. So there's different ways of reaching that. They'll help you sort through your issues and, and find out, you know, how to how to get the get services uh, and supports. And then there are a lot of people who are in distress, you know, and we that's why we have the distress line 780-482-HELP. So for all those people out there who may be struggling or seeing people who they think might be struggling, you know, there is help out there. And that then reaching out is is the start. So that's that's all I'd say. It's really fascinating that you can both text both of those numbers. I did not know that you could. No, you, okay. So you can text two one one. We are working on uh, text capability for the distress line. The Calgary uh, Distress Center in Calgary j- recently announced their text capability. So, being good rivals, we're uh, and partners. Sorry, partners, <laughs> partners. We are <laughs> we are uh, um, furiously or feverishly looking at. Uh, how we can implement that. Cause I mean, especially for, I mean, if you're, if you're in a violent family violence situation or something like that, you know, actually talking to somebody on the phone might be a lot harder than being able right. to send a text. So yeah, no, we're, we're hoping to have that in place soon. Well, thank you so much, both of you for joining us uh, to break down and delve into some of this really important issue. We've been talking about it a lot and it's great to get insight from people actually on the ground. So it was wonderful having you, and you're welcome back anytime. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Troy and Mac. And I know we didn't really get into it as much, but definitely homelessness is a, another topic. <laughs> I know you, you talk about a lot also, and it is significant. So if you ever want um, to have a more focused conversation on that too, I'd be happy to fit in that or find someone else um, that can sure. support that too, because I think that's a huge, huge issue. And it's, and the pandemic has just like the number of people experiencing homelessness in our city is you know, more than doubled in the last few years. And I think it's something that needs uh, continued focus and conversation for sure. Yeah. And I mean, we were doing so well <laughs> right before the pandemic. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh my God. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. Another episode for sure. Yeah. But that's not all for this episode. Stick around after the ad and you'll hear from new and former counselor Aaron Paquette. But before we can hear from him, we need to hear from Shanika and Caitlin, newbies to Formula One. And they'll talk about it on their podcast, Get Checkered. Okay, three, two, one. Hi, friends. Caitlin and Shanika here from Get Checkered. We are your favorite female co-hosted Formula One podcast based out of Calgary, Alberta. Join us weekly as we share our hot takes on the Formula One world with a little bit of sass. Catch the podcast on any streaming service by searching Get Checkered. Whether you're a casual fan or an enthusiast, we We hope you enjoy enjoy the ride. I'm looking here in the notes and it says that Mac is a big Formula One fan, which... Okay, I guess. I don't know if you, dear listener, as surprised to hear this information as I am. Maybe he thought that Formula One was some dorky chemistry competition that he won after chairing the debate club in high school after he couldn't work up the courage to talk to anyone at lunch hour. I don't know. I'm just uh, speculating here. Formula One is cars, Mac. The thing you're trying to rid Edmonton of. We've all seen your manifesto. On to Councillor Aaron Paquette. We've committed to introducing you to the new council, and we consider returning councillors to be part of the new council. They will form the new set of 13, and they will be deciding on issues in the upcoming term. And our next guest is someone I'm excited to introduce. He's been a frequent crowd favorite on the podcast in his previous turn, and he's back at it again for another term, now in Ward Dene, which is 
identical to Ward 4. Welcome to the show, Aaron Paquette. Oh, thank you very much, Troy and Mac. It's wonderful to be here. Glad to have you. For the weird, frequent listener who doesn't know who you are, it's a very peculiar Venn diagram there. Introduce yourself. What is Aaron Paquette all about? That's a good question. Uh, it depends on who you ask. But if you're asking me, uh, Aaron Paquette is uh, all about uh, service to the community. Uh, it's something that I grew up with that was uh, embedded in my teachings all my life and uh, is a absolutely distinct part of my culture that uh, we are all connected. And we even have a word for it in Cree called Wakotori. And it means that we are all in kinship with each other, that I am responsible for you and you are responsible for me. And that is how we uh, build strong communities, strong neighborhoods, strong cities and nations. You're going to be in service to us doing a bunch of stuff over the term. Uh, take us into one of the issues, either something you'll tackle first or something you'll be tackling over the course of the whole term. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, I was really um, focused on in the last term was uh, just the issues of uh, security uh, when it comes to food security or housing, things like that. You know, uh, some people might say, you know, oh boy, you know, city council shouldn't be in, you know, shouldn't be focusing on social issues, things like that. But people who say that are absolutely and irrefutably wrong. And the reason for that is because every social issue tends to be an economic issue. And if we don't get it right, then we soon find ourselves with wonderful plans and a crumbling social structure. And that doesn't really work out for anyone. So one thing I heard at the doors, loud and clear and stronger than ever before during this election, uh, was people with a whole host of uh, different concerns, but the overriding concern was that of homelessness and uh, people in addictions. And what are we going to do about it? Now, what you try to do is, uh, you know, educate people or explain to them that uh, these issues that they're so concerned about that they see every day on their city streets, it's actually a provincial responsibility that they have the legal responsibility. They also have the fiduciary capacity to take care of these issues, but they don't. They're choosing not to. Um, and it is 100% a choice. Now, that kind of sounds like passing the buck. You know, I see it on my city streets. Isn't the city responsible? In the absence of provincial leadership, we are trying to take care of this. We're trying to do what we can. Uh, but uh, we do not have the legal to tools, and we certainly do not have the economic ability to do this. And so that's something that we really have to focus on. We have to get a handle on it. The lack of mental health supports, the lack of addiction supports, the lack of supports for poverty is egregious. And it's only getting worse. And what else is getting worse? Well, we've got uh, economic issues that are getting worse. And uh, you know, we had an economic downturn. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but we're going to see a further uh, reduction in economic capacity as we go forward for a bit of time. That's just a certainty. We will also see rising inflation. And so when we fight for a 0% tax increase, that is actually going to mean just on the inflationary uh, bit alone, a 4.6% decrease in city budgets, which means a decrease in services that we're able to provide because we've already cut everything to the bone. So when we're talking about dealing with homelessness and houselessness, what we are really talking about is uh, major cities in Alberta that are the economic engines of our province being starved 
and being left to deal with the messes that are absolutely within the province of this province and that aren't being taken care of. But we're going to fight and we're going to keep going. And that's what we have to deal with. It's pretty hard to argue with your position. I wonder if you could talk a bit about what you'll do differently as a returning counselor versus what you did in the first term, because it's not a uh, a new issue. It's not something that's new for you or for, for Edmonton. What do you think uh, being a returning counselor will allow you to do differently? One of the things is that uh, as a returning counselor, there, there are some issues that uh, are very complex and very difficult to get up to speed on quickly. And so it'll be incumbent on the incumbents to um, step up to the plate and take leadership on those roles. Whereas uh, with the House Assistance File, um, I sort right. of sat back because this was Michael Walters and uh, Scott McKean and uh, Mayor Iveson who are really the primary movers on this. But it's going to take a group effort this time and it's going to take all of us. But it's also going to take um, those of us who are returning to really drive home the seriousness of the situation we find ourselves in. Uh, because this one issue is representative of so many issues uh, that um, are indicative of the broken relationship between this province and its municipalities. Well, we look forward to seeing you fight for this file on council in the upcoming term, and you can bet um, we'll be watching. So, do Well, good. I hope so. I hope so. And I hope that uh, your listeners... Uh, put pressure on the provincial government to take action because we can't do it alone. This is going to take um, all of us together. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. I'm Geary. I'm Crystal. And we're... Speaking Speaking Invisibly.